This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. When you first joined Majestic now, what really attracted you to the business? So I guess it was just over five years ago. I joined three weeks before my wedding, so I can remember the day pretty well. I think really what attracted me at first was was Rowan, who the founder of Naked. And so the way I got involved with the Majestic Group, I'd been working in my previous job. I was a retail strategy consultant, and I actually just led a strategic review in 2014 of the Majestic Wines business. And one of the things that came out of that review was some recommendations around the management team at Majestic at the time, and also around the broader strategy. And in particular, you know, they had a business back then, 2014, which was seeing negative volume movement in their online business, which in 2014 was quite an achievement. So there were some clear themes they needed to work on. And, you know, the chairman at the time, I think, you know, saw the opportunity for combination with Naked and saw an opportunity to address both of those things and to bring in, you know, a very different, you know, visionary management team led by Rowan and, and also to infuse the business with digital capability. So wind forward a little bit. And as Rowan was doing his due diligence, I got a chance to meet him. And I just remember vividly having a meeting with him in London. And actually, I met with James Crawford, who now runs our, our UK business. And I thought, these are a couple of people who've got a really interesting perspective on an industry that's in general quite tired. And this is a combination of a couple of brands which are really interesting and I think could do a lot more. And it was a story I knew I wanted to follow. So I I dropped Rowan a note uh, after the deal closed and said, you know, congratulations. It was a pleasure meeting you. You know, don't don't suppose there's anything interesting that, you know, I might be able to get involved with. And, uh, he, he sent me a nice note back saying, oh, I was actually thinking about giving you a call. We had a we had a half hour chat over coffee. And I surprised my wife when I went home and said, uh, I've taken a new job. <laughs> and, and so that was the role of, of continuous improvement. What did you learn in those early days? I think it was a really interesting time. And for me, probably there's a combination about what we learned as a business and what I learned personally. And for, for me, on a, on a personal level, it was a great chance to work directly with Rowan for a number of years and get a sense not just of how the business worked in terms of numbers and mechanics, but his philosophy behind founding it and the ideals and the aspirations that we were always trying to get naked to. And I think that was really helpful. And you know, if I took kind of one thing away from it, it was this you know, absolute criticality of making sure we construct this business as a win-win business, an ecosystem where winemakers are winning in partnership with customers. And that a logical and inevitable consequence of getting those two things right will be, you know, internally we'll do fine, shareholders will do well. In terms of the business, I think it was a time where we really started to professionalize and make great strides in terms of how we interrogated our performance and in particular our investment performance. So that was a lot, a lot of my role at the time was helping us go from having a good theoretical understanding of a return on investment, but still being a little bit abstract. You know, we maybe knew or measured the return on a channel in a market. But the reality is within that channel, you're investing with seven or 10 different people, and some of them could be great and some of them could be bad. So I think if I learned one thing, it's that in particular in investment, you know, averages can hide a multitude of sins. And disaggregating that down to a specific level of detail is critical if you really want to be credible when you say you take capital allocation seriously. I do want to go into the lifetime value stuff a bit later, but can we just walk through how Naked works with winemakers? Let's say 
you know, I'm a winemaker and you naked approach me. What exactly is the process for us to work together? Well, the nice thing is now probably what would happen, Will, is you come and approach me. So we're in the in the in the nice position of, uh, I guess, we're being courted as opposed to having to do so much courting. But um, joking aside, the first thing we'll always do is start with a conversation around around you and your passion, your motivation and desire. What are, what are you looking to achieve, and how can we, with the assets and capabilities we've got at Make It, help you to deliver that? And is there a fit? You know, does that does that match what we're trying to do as a business? So. Here are some of the things that are on our winemaker checklist, if you like. Uh, first off, you've got to be an amazing winemaker that makes great wine. And that's, that's a given. Uh, almost think of that as a hygiene factor, though. There, there are lots of great winemakers out there. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great skill and a great calling, but, you know, there are lots of people who can make really good bottles of wine. I think the next thing we spend a lot of time asking people questions about and understanding is their intrinsic motivation. You know, what makes them tick? And there are some people who are fantastic winemakers. But their motivation is all around kind of status or, you know, making wines that really give them gratification because a sommelier in a fancy restaurant on the West Coast really likes it or because some of their friends you know, think it's really interesting and esoteric. And those type of people don't tend to fit very well with Naked. The type, the type of people who work really well with Naked take passion in producing something of really high quality that can be enjoyed by lots of people. They love the idea that they'd be able to directly interact with millions of people who've actually consumed their wine and, and hear what those real people think. And they tend to have a real sense of pride in over-delivering. You know, the, the idea that you can make a, something that tastes like a $40 bottle of wine and sell it for 20 really appeals. On the flip side, there are, you know, it's fair, still some people out there are saying, well, you know, if it's not going to sell for $200, I, I don't, I don't want to do it. And, and those people are, are never going to be a great fit for what we're trying to achieve. And so what exactly do you offer me as a, as a winemaker. Okay, so let's get to the point where we've worked out that you're attitudinally, it feels like you fit, and you've got a point of view, you've got something you're interested in doing. And the next thing we'll work out is, well, you know, what do we need to support you to make that wine happen? So to, let's take a couple of different examples. You know, it could be that you're a really talented winemaker that's stuck in one of the big corporate wine entities here in the US that make about 80% of all wine sold in the USA. So you've probably got a good black book of contacts. You've got a lot of experience, but what you won't have is any capital. So what we might do in that instance is say, hey, you know, let's put together a range together. We'll fund your first couple of vintages, which will mean, you know, we'll go and help you put in place the fruit contracts. You probably already know the growers you want to work with, but we can hold the contracts for you. We can help you work out where you want to crush that wine. And, you know, we can buy you barrels, you know, set you up with those projects and get you ready to go. We'll obviously also help you with thinking about how you interact on in our community and set up your profile and build your brand within Naked. We're giving you absolute clarity in terms of the volume of wine you're producing and an ironclad commitment to take all of that wine. So you've got a totally de-risked scenario to go and launch your own brand. On the flip side, you know, it could be that you're a small producer that's already got a facility and is already making wine. And it may be that, you know, the, the only thing that we need to help you scale your business and help make your business more efficient, reduce your costs is to say, hey, we love your wines. We would like to help you make many more of them. Maybe you're selling excess fruit at the moment and you'd like to actually turn that fruit into wine yourself. And maybe in that instance, all we need to do to help you is give you a long term commitment with certainty around volume. So there's no one size fits all solution. It's a question of thinking we have some assets. We have a stream of cash flow, about $280 million a year, if you now multiply out the 800,000 members we have globally coming in to help us fund projects. 
we have a predictable and scaling business, which means we can give commitments with certainty. Frankly, we've got an ethos that we think that's just the right way to do business, which is you know, not, not shared by everyone, but you know, that's, in, that's important too. Uh, and then we have this distribution network and capability. It means you don't need to worry about marketing. You don't need to worry about selling. So that's the other big thing for a winemaker. We are able to eliminate a lot of costs that just don't go to the taste of the product at all. Let's say you were running a 5,000 case winery in Paso Robles, California. You're probably going to be spending as much money on things that aren't making wine as you do on making wine. And those kind of things are going to be, you probably operate a tasting room with a tasting room manager and a couple of staff working there. You'll have a small direct-to-consumer business, which needs a D2C manager. You've probably got someone doing shipments. And you'll have a couple of people working on your distributor network, trying to sell to 42 different distributors to cover the whole USA. You know, we can make all of those costs disappear. And you know what? The wine doesn't taste any different. And so what's the split in your winemakers between those smaller producers that already have the facilities versus individual winemakers that I don't, you know, have to go and work with the growers and then come to you as an individual? I think I'd identify kind of three big groups of producers we work with. So the first one is, yeah, incredibly talented winemakers coming out of a kind of corporate background, and we're helping set them up in their business. You know, so that they're a big group of winemakers we have tend individually to be slightly lower volume projects. So probably, you know, a third of winemakers, maybe less than that of volume. I'm kind of doing this roughly off the top of my head. I haven't got any numbers in front of me well here. Um, the second group, uh, as they would be, you know, those producers who we're helping scale their own business. You know, some great examples of that would be someone like a Sam Plunkett, an amazing winemaker for us out in Victoria, Australia, or Scott Kelly, who runs a fantastic operation in the town of Roseburg in the Umqua Valley in Oregon. And then the third group would be larger wineries that have got often a background and a heritage in growing, in grape growing, that we use as kind of core partners for some of our more affordable wines. Because I think it's really important if you want to make high quality, affordable wines, what do you need to do? You need to work with people who've got access to the, you know, to the core core supply. And a great example of that would be a long-term partnership we have with Lang Twins in Lodi, California. And two of our winemakers, you know, work full-time on site there, David Ekiosh and Karen Birmingham. And, you know, they're a fantastic family business been farming in Lodi for five generations and we've uh, we really enjoy working with them so they'd be three different types of relationships we'd have and you, you could see multiple examples of, of lots of those ultimately I think we're really not precious about the structure of the relationship and I think in this business you've got to be willing to be flexible and, and come up with a bespoke arrangement for you know responds both to what someone needs and you know therefore what you can offer them what we're always passionate about is you know it's got to be a great winemaker They've got to have that desire to you know, make great wine for our angels. It's going to always be a product that's absolutely exclusive to, to Naked Wine's customers. So when people become loyal to it, you know, Naked is the only place that they can get it. And it's got to be a wine that's you know, delivering on the, you know, people buy it. And, you know, obviously the margin structure needs to work. You know, we're a business, not a charity. As long as those three things are true, then happy with lots of different types of arrangements. And so how does the economical arrangement differ between those different categories yeah again you know the the economics of probably each partnership are you know somewhat specific you know in general when winemakers come to work to naked it's worth saying that money isn't normally the biggest driving factor i think actually for a lot of people the primary two things are getting away from a career that's accidentally turned into an office job 
you started out being a winemaker because you were passionate about wine, but all of a sudden, you know, you've been promoted at Treasury or Constellation and you're responsible for running the budget of three facilities and dealing with HR issues and all the, all the, all the other kind of fun things that I get to do in my job. Do they have to go and find the growers then if they leave like one of those big brands? They have to have a relationship with the growers then, I assume? You'll normally find that winemakers who've been involved with any of those will have have a very good black book of growers. They'll normally have growers they prefer to work with. We'll often negotiate and hold the grape contracts, but they'll often help us work out who's got the best fruit. We try and divide and conquer. But so it's getting back to making wine and spending time in the cellar in the vineyard. And then it's creating a brand that's personally theirs and that enables them to make products they're passionate about, as opposed to producing a portfolio that they're told to make, tend to be the number one and number two reasons people come to make it. The great thing is, as the business has scaled, you know, we've also got a lot of independent winemakers who are making a really good living. And, you know, we're proud of that. And as we grow, you know, we're seeing the average winemaker compensation year over year continue to increase. And I think it will continue to do so. And so in terms of how the working capital works from your end, so do you pay them a portion up front or what's the installments that you pay typically for, let's say, 5,000 case grow or however you want to look at it? Again, so it will vary a little bit. So let's say we're funding a project. We'll more typically then be purchasing the fruit. And so we'll be buying the effectively the cost of goods we're paying for up front. And most of those winemakers we're working on effectively a kind of salary type model where we're paying them, you know, per project they're doing for us. And it's we 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 move out their cash flow and put it into, you know, a lovely, nice, smooth monthly amount, uh, which, again, is very different from how, how most people in the wine industry try to go out on their own experience, their cash flow, which, which people appreciate. If someone's at a point where their business is scaled a little bit more, and maybe that's because they've worked with us for a number of years, we might move to a different model where we are paying and we will have you know, a set schedule of payment terms. You know, Our terms will still tend to be much favorable to working with one of the big, big guys. But ultimately, over time, you know, we don't we don't need to use our balance sheet to support everyone because you get to a point where you've built your business into a you know, some of our winemakers now are 50, 60,000 case operations. And, and at that scale, uh, you know, they're able to fund certainly their existing business. It may be that we then do a new project with them. And, and then, you know, you can look at that differently and say, hey, we need to help you fund your further growth. Okay, so in terms of the the way you pay them, obviously, you, you, you buy, you pay the cogs up front, effectively, pay them a salary. And then potentially as the as they scale, that could change the dynamic of the relationship, depending on how much capital they have. Exactly. Uh, and again, it's, it's all it's all back to how can we most efficiently use our assets in, in order to enable the winemakers to produce great wine at the lowest cost possible, which means we can share that low cost of production between the winemaker ourselves and the customer who gets the outstanding value at the end of the day. And, you know, that's, you know, we don't we're not precious about how that works. We're always looking in an individual circumstance and the most efficient way to do that. So how do you look at analyzing that the return on that effectively investment and inventory yeah so we've done quite a lot of work on this and you can you know the glib answer is like time value of money right so you you can in the same way that a traditional corporate finance team would look at the balance between kind of taking an early settlement discount and paying on the longest possible terms you can look at the difference between funding a product up front and and you know paying for it on terms the slightly less glib answer which i think is probably the one you're looking for william is that we we look at the performance of the products and we look to see one of two things if we're going to go and fund something up front. Number one, either that we see an exceptional performance. So that for us, that's either we're driving you know, higher margin, but normally what we're looking for, we're creating a product that drives higher customer satisfaction. 
And we measure that primarily through two things. One thing you see on our website, which is a buy it again rating. Customers saying, hey, yeah, I love this wine. I'd buy it again. The other thing is us taking more of a data science point of view, which is a repurchase rate. So while, while buy it again is the explicit answer from customers, repurchase rate is the derived metric for all the people who could have bought this wine again, did they? And we look at both of those. The second thing is there are just some projects that can only come to fruition with funding. And we think it's, you know, it's just core to what we want to do. We want to make those type of projects possible. Let's give you a good example. Wayne Donaldson makes beautiful sparkling wines for us here in California. Now, Wayne uh, was working at Domaine Chandon beforehand. He's got a ton of experience you know, around the world making amazing sparkling wine. It takes about three years to bring a bottle-conditioned sparkling wine to market. You need to work with a specialist facility that's got all the terrage equipment. It's very, very expensive, very capital-intensive. You know, the only way Naked could have an independent sparkling wine brand would be through funding that up front. And so some of those things we just say, hey, you know, we're in the business of curating a range of wines from the world's best winemakers for our angels. And for some of those, it's just always going to require us to put our balance sheet to work. And that's just what we do. It's the business we got. Right. And you need to obviously look at the how many bottles or cases am I going to get from this investment and effectively what is the price per bottle that I think that I can get to to look at a potential return plus the data you have from the website absolutely and i think the you know the beauty here is the extent to which the way we work drives down the cost of production for our winemakers and i think that's the thing that sometimes people don't appreciate fully and when you can help someone produce the same quality product for less money you know that that's great all around because that gives you a real sustainable basis of competitive advantage and that's why we work so closely with our producers it's why we do long-term contracts and commitments it's why we're closely integrated with our supply chain because if you have that basis as i say you, you, predictability in any kind of production environment and you know winemaking is a very romantic production environment but it's still a production environment is the secret to driving down cost our winemakers are able to enter long-term great contracts, you know, backed with the security of a public listed company. You know, all of that means you're sourcing fruit for less money. You know, you're getting scale in terms of sourcing dry goods, barrels, things like that. Then you drive greater volume per skew because we're still, you know, we're a pretty big business. We're a very big business when you think about the volume we put through on an individual wine level. So that means you go from maybe making 2,000 bottles of a wine to 2,000 cases of a wine. You're making 12 times as much. That has a whole bunch of other benefits, right? Actually, you know, your your production cost economics, your crush costs per ton go down. You're able to utilize bigger tanks. You get the same quality of product, but you get more production efficiency. And then you amortize costs much more effectively. You know, let's say a talented winemaker's got a going rate. And when you're doing that across only, you know, a couple of thousand bottles, actually, it's easily can end up being $5 a bottle. When you do that across a commercial size production run, all of a sudden you can dropping under a dollar in terms of winemaker costs. So again, you're stripping a whole bunch of costs out. Then you take out all of those selling and marketing costs. And, you know, that's how we get to a point where, you know, we can probably make a wine that maybe it's cost, take, you know, at a 2000 bottle scale in Napa is maybe costing $15 to make and another $15 to sell, $30 in total. You know, we can probably make that wine for 10 or 11. And then we don't have any of those selling costs. Um, and that's before I'm sure at some point we'll talk about the fact, you know, we go direct to the consumer and you then get to skip out the distributor and the retailer. So that's the beauty of the model. That's why the economics stack up. And I think that's why ultimately that's I'm a simple person. That's why customers like the business. It's because we've got a way of sustainably creating uh, better quality wine for your money. And just on that point in the supply chain and, and the scale economies you have with growers, how, how do you see extending that over the, maybe extending the, the, the contract length or keep on improving and reducing that unit cost? 
I, look, I think you're spot on. <laughs> you, you, got it. you answered your own question. You know, we're always looking to deepen those relationships. So with people we've got a good track record with and it's clear the product works, we're looking at extending contract duration. We've already signed, you know, a number of five-year contracts, which is, you know, pushing things out for us. I'm sure at some point in key regions, we'll look at securing sourcing over a 10-year window. And that's, that's good for two reasons. You know, number one, it, it just makes you a preferred buyer. So you're able to lock in the best fruit and it gives you pricing stability, which is, which is obviously very helpful. Whereas a lot of all the competitors we have out there who are trying to replicate part of our business, the marketing direct to consumer angle, so regulate the business as a winery, disintermediate distributor and retailer, you know, are not working nearly so closely on the, on the supply production side. And it, that, that means they're, treating the wine a little bit more as a commodity. You know, they'll buy whatever is available in a given year on, on the spot market. And I want to be very fair. You can buy good wine on the bulk wine market. Uh, you don't have to buy, there doesn't have to be anything wrong with it. And you know, even a, you know, a big company, a Kendall Jackson will still buy bulk wine. Right? It's not it's just going to cost you. something that most people do. Exactly. But it exposes you to a lot of cost volatility. And you get to a position where people get faced to making a hard decision. You know, do I compromise my margin structure or do I compromise my quality? And I'll leave it up to people to do some mystery shopping and decide what, what some people sometimes do. But how does the winemaker's approach to the economics change as they do scale? Let's say that you're driving more volume per skew for them. You know, do they want to take a higher fee or how do you make sure it's a win-win for them as you scale? So for winemakers, uh, what you've got is almost, I'm, I'm imagining, imagine the economics of a traditional smaller winemaker, an independent brand. And if you can visualize for yourself a kind of nice wave chart, you know, like a kind of radio wave frequency, and that, that's effectively what the what the returns look like for most small wineries. You've got some years where things are great, market conditions are good, you can make kind of good profits. You know, for example, maybe the, you know, the, the supply of, for a winemaker, if the supply of grapes is plentiful, the price goes down, your profitability goes up. Then there can be years where things happen. For example, you know, there might be 2020 and your production might be disrupted by fire. You might actually not be able to produce that year. Or, you know, market conditions can be tough. You know, there can be a glut of wine coming onto the market, which undermines your pricing and anything like that. So that's what it traditionally looks like. It's a very high risk, very volatile environment. You know, Naked turns that into a lovely, you know, now imagine just a nice kind of shallowly growing line. So, you know, it's growing at like a 15% gradient, you know, from left to right. That's what Naked does. It gives you predictability and it gives you a clear path to growth. And so we don't think, what's the best way to share in that? Well, actually, we think as winemakers grow on a per bottle basis, they're probably making a little bit less money. That means as their brands grow, you know, that we're again driving down some of the intrinsic costs and able to share that value with consumers. But their aggregate rewards are growing and they've got this, you know, extreme predictability. You know, they're not having to take risks and leverage in order to drive growth. So that's typically how it works on the winemaker side. Obviously, as, as Naked does scale and you see this different segmentation, like you mentioned, the individuals, the smaller producers and the larger wineries, do you see the margin, the contribution margin evolving as you change that mix of winemakers? I think the long-term margin structure of the business has got a lot of opportunities to increase. So, you know, the first is there, there, there is a favorable contribution margin dynamic as we see more and more of our business being in the United States. And the structure of the market is such that we are able to over-deliver on quality for value and you still generate a higher margin than, than we are in, in the UK or Australia. So that is one thing for a group that will continue to be supportive. So I've got to tell you one story that encapsulates this. It goes slightly off-piste, but 
when I first moved to the USA, I remember going out and, and doing my first wine tasting down the valley. One of the first things we do when someone starts is give them a physical business card, probably the only place left that still does that. But you, you do it so you can go to the different wineries and you ask for industry benefits. You basically get treated like royalty and, and get a discount off everything you buy. So had a, had a lovely tasting. It was one of the big names. It might have been Frog's Leap. It might have been Stag's Leap. I can't remember. It was one of those two. And the etiquette at the end is you buy a bottle or two and you get a 30% discount. And I bought a couple of bottles of Napa Cab. And the thing that blew me away was they were more expensive from the winery, yards from where they were produced, with a 30% industry discount than they were in my local wine shop in Islington, back in London, where I'd moved from. And that, that just highlights the inefficiency in the US market and, and the, you know, the lack of value the consumer's getting. So for me, that was the aha moment. I was like, if we get things right here with this business, there's an enormous opportunity. So yeah, uh, there's plenty of headroom in terms of contribution margin. I think the philosophical answer, though, is we are a business that believes the greatest opportunity for us to drive long-term profitability, so EBITDA margin for the business, is driving retention. Because if you think about what drives your EBITDA margin, right, you've got your contribution margin, and then thinking about a business at maturity, you've got fixed costs, which you'll leverage and leverage and leverage, they'll go down. And then you've got a cost of replenishing the customers you're losing. And the most effective way to drive EBITDA margin is not to make your contribution margin go up a couple of points. It's to improve your retention and you get this compounding effect where your cost of replenishment can fall dramatically. So philosophically, I'm always more interested in ways to make production more efficient and share that value back with consumers and build a higher retention business that's harder to replicate. It's got a deeper competitive moat than taking the short term opportunity to put that into a higher contribution margin. Just on that point, then. And how the U.S. perception of wine is clearly different than the U.K. And they the the average price per bottle is much higher. They pay more. How do you look at Naked Align in your offering with the U.S. perception of wine? So let, let's say that I think this is a really important conversation. So let's break it into two parts. I think we should we should talk about uh, uh, those the perceptions and the if you like the the, the Napa cult the. Uh, and the and the high-end part of the American wine industry. But I think it's important to, you know, bust a couple of myths. Um, and, you know, the first one is, you know, the reason that the price of a bottle of wine in America is higher than it is anywhere else is, is entirely a function of the three-tier distribution system inflating cost. And most Americans, you know, it's not that most Americans are substantially more discerning or drinking wines of a higher quality level than there are other places on Earth. The second thing is, if you think about our addressable market, we, we believe we address $20 billion of spend, uh, retail value in the USA. And that's wine sold at retail for greater than $10 a bottle to people who drink wine, you know, and buy wine multiple times a month, who are interested in the product. So, you know, they don't just see it as a commoditized thing and are in the 43 states that we're able to ship to. That's a $20 billion market. Of that spend, depending exactly whose report you believe, 16 to 17 billion of that sells at retail for $30 or less, and three to four billion sells for $30 or more at retail. And if you think about our model, because we're able to make better wine for less, a $30 bottle at retail is about 16 to $17 on naked. So I think it's important to start with that anchor of saying, you know, the, the vast opportunity, the biggest opportunity for naked is taking more share of that everyday quality wine for millions of Americans, biggest opportunity we've got. 
We get a lot of questions, and, and I'm sure you've had a lot of questions when asking what we should talk about around the three and a half billion. So I'm also I'm happy to talk about that, but I think you've got to set it in context of the overall opportunity. And there, I think it, it is true that to an extent, the U.S. market is maybe a little less mature in tastes, and there's still a little more of a belief that there's a a, a real relationship between price and quality, and. I think part of that is that Napa as a region has done an amazing job. It's done a really good job of branding itself, and it's done a good job of classic price discipline, keeping prices high. And it's done a good job of therefore convincing people that, you know, of this nice, simple logic of great wine equals Napa Cabernet equals expensive. And it's reinforced that through an incredible experience. So if you'll permit me one more story, when I was moving out to the U.S., I had to go and get a visa to, to move here. And, and it was the, the scary end point of that process for a non-American is going to the American embassy. You go past all the security guards and through the barbed wire fence and, and go and queue in a, in a pretty bleak looking waiting room for a long time. And eventually you're called up to one of the sort of 50 desks. And the guy started uh, grilling me. I'm not going to try and do an American accent. Otherwise, I'm, you know, we're going to have all of our American shareholders sell in disgust. But, um, he starts to, he starts to grill me. And, you know, third or fourth question in was sort of, you know, what, what are you going to do? And I you know, let him know I was, you know, going off at the time to, to be marketing director of this wine company called Naked Wines out in Napa, California. At which point he's like, oh, Napa, you know, I've always wanted to go there. I'd love to take my wife there. It'd be so amazing. Uh, it, it goes on about how much he loves the ideal of Napa for about two minutes, by which point he's processed all of my paperwork, doesn't ask me another question, and, and I leave. So I, I think Napa has just created this aura. Uh, and for a lot of people, it colors the expectation of what, you know, what fine wine is. So, and I think that does present a real choice for us when we start producing fine wine, because on the one hand, you can see from the data, and we publish this a lot in our reports, we, we were obsessive about measuring it internally. As you get into higher and higher scoring wine, and one of the ways we measure this objectively is to look at the Vivino scores that our wines get. So that's ratings of our wines on a third party platform, directly comparable to famous brands. The higher the rating, actually, the bigger the gap between the price we can sell them to our members at and the price that similar wines are available in the market. And why is that? Well, it's because these high end wines in Napa are incredibly small production which, by the way, just equals inefficient. <laughs> there are 700 wineries in Napa, which means you have to spend an awful lot of money marketing and trying to sell them relative to the small amount of money you spent producing them. And then it's also the law of scaling numbers, right? If you start off with a high cost of production and then you scale it through a distributor and a retailer margin, you know, those things just compound. So actually, our model works extremely well in terms of producing high quality wine you know, at great prices. The challenge is then... I describe it as one of accommodation or one of challenge. Do we lean into the perception that to be a great wine, the bottle's got to be heavy enough to break your arm and the price has to be steep enough to cover <laughs> a small well, holiday? And I bet it's tempting. Or, or, or do we try and challenge that? Yeah, and I bet it's tempting, right? Because the easy thing to do, I guess, Nick, would be, okay, the US consumer's used to paying up even though my cost of my unit cost is 16 17 bucks i just sell it at 40 or you know 45 but actually you could you could define a category or you could actually train the consumer which is obviously much more difficult and takes longer but if you train them to really believe in naked and also deliver the quality you you expand or you you basically win the 17 billion dollars market effectively 
Yeah, and, and that, that's exactly the chat, you know the question you've got, Ryan. You're 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 right in the side philosophically that you know we we're clear we sit on. You know we believe it's an uh, a binding commitment at any price wine we sell that we're always going to deliver you measurably better quality for your money. We do believe that there's a reasonable maximum of profit to extract for the pleasure of giving you something nice to drink. Uh, and I, I think the prize, if you can create that aha moment, is that much bigger. You know, that's a really scale business that drives loyalty and advocacy. Whereas the opportunity of just taking some easy margin of money through selling some expensive wines is it's not it's not really changing much. And I, I, it's a bit I well, like you said, the volume matters, right? And you said the volume matters, right? So, like, if you, given the the scale economies you mentioned, in the supply chain and for the winemakers, the volume can can make the model that much better. You can always go after the premium section, you know, later on. That's true, but I think also even in the premium section, right? I, I think you know, I think a lot about Dollar Shave Club is an interesting business here, and the beauty of Dollar Shave Club wasn't that you know, I'm going to sell you cheaper razor blades than you can buy from Gillette because you can go and buy unbranded razor blades that are cheap other places. It was having an aha moment and convincing customers that we can make the same razor blades in the same factories of the same quality and can sell them to you for a lot less money because the cost of producing high quality razor blades is not very high. Uh, and that that became then a business that was really successful. So, you know, that's our challenge, right? It's to unbundle for customers what are the real costs of making fine wine in a region like Napa and what's a reasonable price to sell it to you for. And it's part of the reason that uh, the guy we've hired to run the U.S. business, a guy called Max Miller, in his background, he spent seven years at Craftsy. And one of the strengths he's really got is creating content that brings the stories of, of makers, artisans and producers to life and helps educate in an entertaining way customers about those categories. And I think that's something that we need to do better at Naked. We need to do better at educating customers what really matters and makes a bottle of wine high quality. What does that really cost? How does our model make that more efficient? And therefore, why, you know, why why the myth's a myth, why you don't always get what you pay for and why you really can drink a great bottle of Napa Cab for for $35. But in the meantime, quick plug, anyone who is in the USA and wants to put us to the test, Check out either Matt Parrish or Ken Dice have got a reserve Napa Cabernet. I, I can't tell you the vineyard it's from, um, although, you know, name of a Hanoverian king. It's one of the most famous vineyards in the Napa Valley. We don't put the name on the bottle because if we did, we'd be obliged to charge $100 for it. It's 35 bucks a bottle. If you, if you want to answer the question, can Naked make fine wine? Go drink some of that. Looking at the the customer journey in the US then, and I'm just thinking of the the introductory case for US customers. You talked about retention and being so important. How do you think about optimizing that that first experience that, that the naked customer has? I think it's pretty worth starting with the fact that we've done through the course of our business an awful lot of testing and optimization on those first cases. I'll give you a couple of examples of things that have been powerful. One is we've done a lot of work looking, you know, through through data science modeling around the characteristics that drive highest retention in that case. And it tells you things like Diversity of winemaker is very important. Diversity of wine style is important. So, you know, there should be both, you know, big, bold, ripe fruit flavors, but then there should be some slightly more austere wines. In terms of your whites, you want something really crisp, you know, kind of classic Sauvignon Blanc, but you also want maybe something rich, oaky, you know, Chardonnay. Is this for all customers in the UK and Australia and US? Is the same, it's the same kind of factors or it differs? Similar analysis, the local execution of those styles might be different. 
So, for example, in Australia, you'd still have the conclusion that stylistic diversity was really important in the first case, constant. A local execution, a rich, oaky Chardonnay would not be one of the styles you'd choose to put in in Australia. So we've done a lot of analysis there, which has helped us improve the conversion to second purchase. Um, a second example from the U.S. specifically was was testing the way we enclosed the wines. You know, we, we came to the U.S. with a, a point of view that we quite like screw caps. They're, they're efficient. They're a really good closure. If you ask most people in the wine industry, they'll tell you they're the best closure out there. But consumers like the ceremony and the experience of being able to use a corkscrew. And, and fair enough, right? You know, it's, it's all part of the experience of drinking a bottle of wine. So we A-B tested a case of wine with the same wines enclosed with a screw cap or a cork. And, and, and we discovered that actually that got us something like a five percentage point improvement in conversion to a second purchase. So I guess the first thing is we spend a lot of time testing and refining those case contents. And and I've got to a point where, you know, they, they the combination of the journey and that wine works very efficiently. I think maybe the question you're getting at is, you know, is there more opportunity to customize that first experience? And, and I think the short answer is yes, there absolutely is. You know, we've got a case that I think is, you know, very well engineered to showcase our business and meet the needs of an awful lot of customers. I guess it's, you know, it's why we've got nearly a million members around the world. But there are always outliers or people who sit outside of, you know, you know, have differing tastes. And I think we get a lot of questions from outliers who might be back to the, the, the you know, the, the luxury Napa cab end of the spectrum. To give another example, there are a lot of people whose preferences are for a sweeter style of wine who also might not find the case meeting their needs because it's a representation of six styles of dry wine. So, yes, there's an opportunity there. And one of the things we've been testing is ways to easily learn a little bit more about people's preferences and then curate that first case. And I think we can make some good progress on that in the course of the next 12 months. And is there any challenge in, I'm just thinking of, really getting the merchandise right for different geographies. So do, is there any challenge or how do you make sure that you have the right wines in the right place for the right customer? It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it really is. A, it's a, you know, it's a big challenge. And um, I think if I was describing naked and often when I describe naked internally to candidates, especially people who are joining in, you know, supply chain planning or finance functions, one of the biggest challenges at naked I think it's a fun challenge, but it's a hard one, is balancing effectively a production business and a retailing business. And keeping those two things together is difficult. You've got a product that's got anything from maybe a nine-month to a 36-month lead time. I mean, that's even just from harvest to consumption. And then, you know, you actually need to conceive of and commit to a product in advance of that. And then you need to balance that out against a business that's compounding in scale and size and where you know, the, the growth rate has a degree of uncertainty. And also people's tastes and preferences can evolve during the course of three, three years as well. So your mix can change. So it's not easy. Uh, I think the reality is that we've got a, it's one of the areas we've probably improved most at over the five years I've known us as a business. You know, back in 2016, we, we almost... We almost ran out of wine in our U.S. operation because we, you know, there was a disconnect between our forecasting uh, and our generation of new customers. We had a classic sales function that loved the idea of over-delivering and didn't want to promise that they were going to sell anything. Uh, and, that, and that doesn't work very well. What, what actually business. happened there? What was the big issue? Back in 2016, the issue was we massively overshot our forecasts in terms of customer acquisition, but didn't have a good communication process. And so we ended up with you know the quality of range for existing members becoming compromised. And, and you know, that drives excess 
cancellation and it was a very inefficient way of doing business so you know in, in in five years we've come an awful long way but this year has probably been the hardest year in a while for that because you know when we made our commitments to vintage 20 we obviously didn't anticipate what was going to happen in 2020 you know, like everyone else so there is an extent to which it will take us a little time to get to the absolutely optimized you know merchandising offer you know for example for new members because if we do have a choice or a compromise has to be made somewhere. We always want to make sure we maintain a quality and breadth of assortment and range for for our existing members. So at the end of the day, are funding the wines, and you know their their loyalty and retention is paramount to our long term success. Right. So you can't just put all of the great wines in the introductory cases. Firstly, because it would blow out the, I guess the one year, or you know, it would blow out your your margin, but also the the existing customers wouldn't wouldn't have any merchandise. Yeah, there there are you know we. we Obviously, what we try and do is just only make great wines, right? Is the is the is the is, the, but um, what you describe is, if one were being unkind, the classic wine club business model, right? You, you, and they're saying that we were very determined not to replicate it naked. And the classic model is sort of, you have some great wines, uh, you invest more in their production, you make sure they really over deliver, you put them in introductory cases to new members. Uh, you then put them onto a recurring shipment plan and you send them high margin product that is somewhat commoditized and you don't talk to them and hope they don't cancel. That, that is that is essentially the, the, the kind of wine club model as originally conceived. And we always wanted Naked to be different from that. And it's it's one of the reasons that we chose a payment subscription model as opposed to a product subscription model. And one of the things I love about our model is, you know, firstly, the flexibility and empowerment it gives to customers. You know, March last year, we were able to write to people and say, hey, times are hard and uncertain. Would you like to take the money out of your account? Because maybe you've got other things you want to do with it. Couldn't do that if you've, you know, charged them already for a product. But the other thing it does is it means that every day, you know, we know we need to earn our customers' business. And every order, we need to sell our customers great wine that over delivers in order to earn their continued support and their continued participation. Uh, and I think that's exactly how it should be in any business. How have you seen the behavior of the 2020, called them the COVID cohort, behave in in recent months as the world starts to open back up? I think one of the things that we found interesting is looking at the three geographies we operate the business in to give us a real set of comparisons. And we have... I don't, I don't know whether it's, you know, fortunate is the wrong word. It's hard to know what the right terms are to use when you're discussing something this severe, right? But um, there is clearly a very different health outcome situation between, you know, Australia, the UK and the US. And at different points, you know, the UK and the US have both struggled, but uh, have had different cyclicality or different different waves of the of the epidemic. And that's, for us, kind of quite helpful. It's a helpful natural experiment in our data that we can look to. I think what we've seen everywhere was that customers recruited during this year have had a substantially elevated early purchasing. Uh, and I think that's one of the things you described, you know, the, the desire and need to stock up and being stuck at home and some other options taken away. What's been really interesting is that we've also seen improved retention characteristics in both the COVID cohorts, so members recruited in 2020, but actually in all of our cohorts. And that that retention trend has been very similar in Australia, where things have been much less severe, uh, as it has been in, in the UK and the US. And in Australia, it's shown continuation, you know, through, you know, through through the course of Christmas and beyond, even where, and we were talking about this before we came on, but 
you know, my, my colleagues who I follow on Instagram and get updates from, you know, I see them at the beach having dinner parties. And, you know, you feel quite profoundly jealous, actually, when you're stuck at home with two children under the age of three. But actually, that I think that what that says to us is that in all markets, there's been a long enough period of time where really deeply ingrained habits have formed. And I think the psychology says, you know, 90 days to form a habit. I don't know what this year is going to form. I, 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 you know, I hate to think how, you know, you know, you wonder how it's changed your children. But certainly, I think it's had profound changes on people's shopping behavior. So for us, that stickiness, which I think we attribute to people seeing just more intrinsic value in the service, convenience, and proposit, you know, delivered proposition we offer, uh, feels like something that increasingly is enduring and, and a structural change. And that's maybe just customers using the product more and, and getting the experience that you deliver. Which driving driving retention? I think it is, and like like a lot of models, frequency begets quality of experience. And we're a business that you know prides ourselves on deploying and using data to continually improve the customer experience. So some of the things we've seen this year are more customers, not just more customers, but more of those customers engaging with more elements of a naked proposition. So I think we we had 900,000 posts backwards and forwards between winemakers and customers in the first half of the year, which was a mind-blowing number. I think we were up four times or something on the on the year before. And I think driving more of that richness and quality of interaction, you know, again, that's how people go beyond seeing naked as something transactional as to, you know, a relationship they've got with a favorite winemaker and discovering someone's business or story that they feel personally invested in. You know, when customers in the UK crowdfunded, something like $95,000 during the course of a Zoom tasting for Jen Buck down in the south of France. You know, those people have got much more of an emotional investment than, you know, getting getting something for £5 off 10 in Asda. And I think that that's, that's ultimately one of the things that makes this business special. Uh, and it's an insight we've always had, which is far more people are interested in and want to hear about the stories behind wines. And it's why we made the winemaker the center of Naked Wines. So it's it's much easier to understand someone's passion, the reason why they've chosen to make a product, why they've chosen to make that wine in that place and that style, than it is to have a very technical story about the wine's tannic structure <laughs> and, and ageability. I think a lot of the wine industry still hasn't quite got that. And sometimes we get people, you know, can be quite, um, what's the right word? You know, can take can take offense at us telling the story differently. But, but ultimately, I think if there's a, as an industry, we want to engage, you know, uh, customers and really help them discover amazing new wines. Then it's the best way to do it. And I know you classify mature angels as I think it's after the second or third case purchase. Do you see frequency change much per year of those older cohorts that stick around? Yeah, if you know, if you dig back a while in our reporting, we've got a couple of different metrics we've disclosed. So we focused on our sales retention metric to describe the behavior of our mature customer base. So that's a bit like if you think about a like for like sales metric in retail, you know, for all the customers I had last year, how much did they spend last year? How much did the same customers spend this year? 100% retention would be the same 80% retention, you know, for 100 pounds of revenue last year, I've got 80 pounds of revenue from the same people this year. Probably about we switched that from a customer retention metric probably about four years ago. And the reason we did, because we thought actually the sales retention gave you a better proxy for forecasting the business. It's how, you know, a SaaS company thinks about forecasting out its revenue base. There is a difference between those two metrics. And I think when we ran the numbers last, it tends to be around 10 percentage points. 
as in we retain sales at a higher rate than we retain customers. And that is for two reasons. It's one, because as customers age, they do tend to purchase a little bit more and actually have a slightly higher price per bottle, driving, you know, driving overall slightly higher annual revenue per member. The second reason is it tends to be that there's a selection bias. You know, the customers who drop out tend to be customers who were spending less anyway, and the ones you retain are, are spending more. So they're the, they're the reasons for the gap. So that's broadly the trend we see. It's the reason that our UK business is, is, you know, has got a sales retention rate that is ahead of our overall group. It's, you know, four and a half years older and has got, if you think about the weighted average age of customer, it's older. So as we see the overall business starting to trend towards maturity, that customer average age per customer will go up and that will support higher retention in the business. I think that's a way off because I mean, at the moment, the acceleration in customer acquisition we're driving, you know, year over year, we're actually making the average customer younger because we're driving so much acquisition. So, you know, that's 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 something that will play out over the long term. And how do you look at the long run retention? Is that a target for you specifically, like for you personally? I think any person who runs a subscription business and doesn't have a point of view on their, their long term target of retention probably shouldn't be running the business. So we we absolutely know that it's the single biggest way in which we can impact the you know the ultimate profitability and scale of, of Naked Wines. In terms of you know where do I think I can get to? I'm not you know I'm not gonna, I'm not going to guide anyone to a to a number out here. I have a good good scoop, William. I'm not going to give you a number, but we do have a number of hypotheses about ways in which we can drive that retention rate higher. I think we talked a lot about how we can do it through our wine, our product earlier. So I won't go back there, but I will say fundamentally, you know, I'm, I'm an old fashioned retail guy at heart and I think product is king. So, you know, the wine is incredibly important. I think in addition to that, we can continue to make improvements in the quality of our digital experience and the way in which we present that product to customers. And a couple of things that I'm really excited about. One is the opportunity to get much better at adapting the Naked Wines experience to the preferences of different groups of customers. Now, time and time again, research has shown, and our research shows this very clearly, that there's a split between customers who love shopping for wine and want to be deeply involved and, and like making their own choices, and customers who love drinking wine but don't enjoy the process of shopping for wine and are looking more for someone to do the hard work of recommendation and helping them identify new favorite products for them. And I think today we're doing a better job for the former group of customers than we are for the latter. But we've got all the right attributes in terms of, you know, the data we've gotten the, you know, we've got 29 million ratings of our wine since we started. And we have good recommendations, but we haven't found, I think, quite the right experiences to surface those recommendations to customers. So one of the things we've got in beta testing at the moment is a product we call Wine Genie, which does just that. And I'm very excited about that. I think there are also other ways in which we can continue to invest more in, in just the, the basics of fundamentals of the user experience of things like our app and, uh, and our site. And it, it is, is probably one of the legacies of the business being a little underinvested in or capital constrained during the era where we were combined with Majestic, that we've not been able to put as much money into, you know, that tech development, you know, say from 2015 through 2019 as maybe ideally we would have done. So we we see ourselves very much as in, in catch-up mode, and I think there are some, some low-hanging fruit there. 
that can make it easier for customers to get to the really special parts of the naked business, which are the stories of our winemakers, you know, these amazing wines that over deliver on quality for value and this fantastic community where they can engage and discover the real people behind real products as opposed to the commoditized brands that you're seeing on grocery shelves. I'm just trying to get into your your head and day-to-day, Nick. So, you know, that standstill EBIT number that you publish, that you report, and like you just said, it's, you know, it's mainly driven by the sales retention and, you know, that, that kind of contrib- repeat contribution margin. And then you find the, the kind of replenishment spend, which is based on the one year payback or effectively the cost, you know, the CAC. You know, what do you, what do you really focus on specifically to make sure that, you know, this doesn't become a, you know, you don't overspend or become a blue apron scenario where you, you get ahead of yourself or how do you look at the risks in, in that lifetime value work that you have to do? I think it's an excellent question. And probably one of the areas where I'm most proud of the competency we've built in the business. And it's worth, I think, talking a bit about how we come to a lifetime value estimate for our customers and and the process we go through and how we triangulate that. I I don't want to claim that we have the best lifetime value calculations of anyone out there, because I'm sure there's someone who can, you know, who, who can beat us. But in terms of a mid-cap company, I think the way we do it, I, I think we're, we're in a really good place. And so wind back to when I started the business five years ago. You know, we were still in that classic world of kind of cohorts and spreadsheets. So, you know, after a year, we kind of knew whether or not our investments had been good. And we had a decent idea where cohorts of customers were going to go. But do you know what? A lot happens in a year. And what's really important about lifetime value modeling is two things. You know, one, you need to be accurate in terms of the values you generate. But two, you know, you need to do that in a timely and actionable way, because the biggest use of lifetime value modeling in our business is giving real time feedback to operational teams who are making decisions. And the most important of that are our growth marketing teams. You know, at an extreme, you know, our digital marketing group are making decisions on allowable bids on Facebook every day. But our partnerships team are every week, you know, deciding whether or not to renew or sign new partnerships. You know, should we do another direct mail campaign, whatever. So you need you need a decent degree of accuracy, but you also need that early on. Uh, and what we were doing didn't work. So we moved to a machine learning driven valuation of each customer and got to really credit a guy called Jason Scott, who runs our global analytics function, who pioneered this and built this out for us. And we went through a long process, probably in about 2017 of interrogating this, we built this framework in kind of a beta test environment. And we measured, uh, we you know built these models, I think there's about 150 attributes go into building 200 different unique models. And effectively, you're valuing each customer every day. And you're looking, you're creating for them a trajectory of likely orders, uh, likely survival to the next period. And then you're projecting forward a contribution margin. And those three things, when they build up, effectively get you to a lifetime value calculation over either a one-year, a five-year, a tw- whatever horizon you, you want. And we spent a lot of time verifying you know, how accurate are these models and cutting them in different ways. So, okay, if I look at the whole American custom base that I recruited, like what's my margin for error for the one-year horizon? Because that was a horizon we could test the models to. Then we cut it into, okay, well, let's look at it at an individual partner level because that's the decision we're actually trying to make. Okay, how accurate are, are, are we on those levels? And I think I forget which one of our presentations we put this into we actually put in some of the extracts from some of those charts into into one of our results presentations and what we discovered was by using a combination of transactional metrics demographic metrics and engagement metrics we could get to 
a kind of plus or minus 10% forecast of customer quality very, very quickly, which is incredibly powerful. It helps you work out whether you've, if you've got a new channel or a new marketing area, are these average quality customers, extremely high quality customers or low quality customers? And, and everyone thinks the biggest value is in spotting mistakes and identifying when there are low value customers. And that's useful. But actually, the biggest application for us has been helping us identify high quality demographics and high quality customer bases, because that's where you've got real competitive advantage. You've got the confidence and certainty to be able to then back that investment hard and early, commit more money there, uh, uh, scale investment in those channels and in aggregate bring higher quality customers into the business. So we started started that in 2017. I think we probably fully rolled that out globally in about 2018. It's something that's never finished. You're always working through it and, and validating and improving it. But it really is one of the bits of proprietary technology that I think has been at the heart of Naked Wine success, and I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, the only other thing I'd say to that is, you know, the last nine months, <laughs> you know, have been tricky. And um, again, if I kind of quote Jason, you know, like anyone anyone who tells you they've got a great model that kind of understands what's happening in a pandemic is either delusional or a liar. So you've got to also recognize that there, there are some limitations. Right? And so what we do in a time like this is we we do a couple of things. We look at the simple triangulations you can do, which let you look at the movement in the valuation that your model is telling you in customers, and you take it back to fundamentals. You say, okay, I've seen this much appreciation in suggested value. Well, I can see a 10% step up in contribution margin, and I'm confident that's enduring. So that supports a portion of it. We've seen this change in underlying retention. Well, if it kind of if it actually compounded out and stuck all of it, you know, maybe that drives 30, 40% increase in valuation. And then we've got some increased frequency. And you say, okay, well, if I look at the fundamentals, they support actually a slightly higher increase in values. But then you're taking a judgment call on how much of them stick. And then the final thing you do, or at least we do as a team, is say in a period where there's more uncertainty, you give yourself more cushion. So you try and invest a little bit higher above your hurdle rate. Maybe this year we got that not quite right because our, our returns at the half year, I think, at, you know, our lifetime payback metric, I think we're about 76 uh, versus a long-term target of four. And, you know, mentally we were thinking five would be a good buffer. So maybe we still weren't quite aggressive enough, but that's philosophically how we think about that. But, and how are you thinking about it now where, like you said, you've got to make a, a judgment call on the retention, the stickiness of those COVID cohorts because you have to go and acquire more customers, but also, like you said, the working capital of inventory and, and, and serving those new customers potentially. Like, absolutely, right. You know, they, they are they are big decisions that are, at the end of the day, we have, you know, we have a lot of confidence in the different ways we're triangulating that number. And I guess it comes back to as well, you know, your, your, your belief in your ability to explain positive movements in, in your business. And, and for us, I think one of the things we haven't talked about, but is the extent to which, you know, this period, you know, the, this kind of pandemic has fundamentally changed something in terms of consumer openness to just the category. And I think that's, you know, the biggest single change in terms of the rate at which I think we can grow this business to scale. I think it was always going to happen eventually that Americans in particular were going to were start buying wine online. But it had been this strange category. You know, penetration of wine online in the USA was a long way behind other categories in the USA. And it was a long way behind wine online penetration in other markets. So you're like, OK, this is what's going on. Why is this? Even if you went and researched this, you know, back in 2019, you know, the guys at Rabobank did a study and they, I think they found something like 30 to 40 percent of Americans didn't even realize it was legal to buy wine online. And I think a lot of this comes back to the patchwork of kind of complicated state level laws that were put in place at the repeal of prohibition. 
So what's happened this year, you have this massive acceleration in online purchasing because like everything else from you know education streaming to video conferencing to everything else, people were stuck at home and had to find different ways to solve aspects of their life. And wine was the same thing. People wanted something, a simple pleasure to enjoy with their family. They had to find a new way to buy. What they did was ask friends and family. We actually saw a 16-fold increase in referrals, customer referral, in May this year versus February uh, in the US. And there's just this moment of awakening. You, know, you might not have bought wine online this year, but if you're a wine lover, chances are you know, either a member of your family or a close friend has. And that, that consideration set is much improved. And when you're a business like us, you know, a really big advertiser that believes in acquiring customers and then deriving value over the long term, Anything that fundamentally changes the portion of the market that are open to your product or service, you know, you're just going to drive marketing effectiveness. And, and for us, that's a that's a structural shift we don't see going back. You know, even if the actual percentage of wine bought online, you know, is going to is going to oscillate around. Right. We don't. But the openness, the percentage of people who will consider online purchasing, I think, has taken a massive step up. And, you know, that's not going away. How do you use the outbound call in sales channel? to be effective in onboarding? Yeah, so these days we tend to use our outbound team primarily on, on existing members. And, and we find that there are a cohort of members who you know just love the human touch and like to hear from someone who's an expert, who gets to taste the range with our winemakers in normal times, RIP, not, sadly, sadly not in the last eight months. So that's the primary way that, that, that we use that. We do also do some targeted campaigns to reach out to people who we see maybe not engaging with the early emails, and we just want to make sure they understand their membership. I think it's one of the areas that I'm interested longer term. I think there could be a, an interesting opportunity to integrate that with some of the data-led propositions we have. You know, think that you can imagine the combination of Wine Genie plus your wine concierge or your wine expert, you know, that could be a powerful combination. So, you know, that's an area we're always looking to develop. Um, but it's primarily for us at the moment, a, a way of better serving some of our existing members. Last question on marketing, Nick, before we just touch on logistics, before we finish, but I have to just ask you about vouchering and why vouchering is, is just so effective and how you see that evolving specifically in the U.S., I'm disappointed that I don't. I'm um, actually moving house today, and I haven't got I haven't got my wallet or anything with me. I was, I was going to kind of hold up a voucher here as a little prop. From even the day I first entered Naked, you know, people were always asking us like, "Oh, you know, when are you guys going to stop doing vouchers?" And you know, isn't this selfish? One of the really interesting things, then, I guess, take a step back. I, I really enjoy that the voucher marketing or insert marketing channel is seen as a bit old-fashioned. It's certainly not a sexy marketing channel. Because that means, you know, there's ultimately less competition in it. And Naked, we've, I think, always prided ourselves on doing a few things a little bit differently. So, so we quite like that. The fundamental driver of that channel, if you think about it, the size of the channel is driven by the number of e-commerce delivered packages in the market, which is in, you know, so, you know, so supported by a secular growth trend actually seeing the fastest growth ever this year. So the channel actually is in robust health. If you compare that to the trend in terms of eyeballs available on Facebook, actually the underpinning growth in inventory on vouchers is much more favorable. The secret source, I think, for Naked is that we hold most of our relationships directly. So by that, I mean, we will have an annual contract with Shutterfly to insert 12 million vouchers in Shutterfly packages. Why do we do that? You know, number one, you get access to better quality of inventory. So you're doing deals with businesses that have good customer bases that you think have affinity to yours. 
and you're getting your insert featured, you know, maybe on its own or with one or two other inserts, as opposed to people who just dabble in the channel and use a broker. You know, typically you get that kind of envelope of kind of 10 bits of, you know, I was going to use a bad word, but um, that often goes straight in, straight in the bin. So that's that's powerful. I think the second thing is because we have this proprietary understanding of lifetime value and we're very confident in our ability early to do a small test and understand the quality of a demographic of a cohort and measure response, uh, we're willing to commit in a much bolder way than other people will. So we'll say, great, looks like this really works. Let's do a deal for a year. Here's a check for half a million dollars or, or whatever it might be. But does that fit the consumer perception in the US if they get vouchers? Because it's, it's, it seemed like a discount channel in the UK to some extent. But do you think that could be damaging to the perception of the brand in the US? I think it's it's a balance you always need to strike. You know, I mean, vouchers have got a great role to play. They're a really good proven driver of trial and a great way to kind of take someone on the last step of a of a conversion journey. The opportunity we have in front of us is to have a much richer marketing ecosystem and find more ways to communicate naked points of difference, more ways to tell our story. Well, not even really our story. Tell our winemaker stories. They're the good stories and get them out there. And I think the more we do that, actually, just the more powerful vouchers become because they just become that perfect final prod or call to action. You know, I've been meaning to try that. You know, let, let, let's give it a go. This, this seems like a great place to start. So you're right. There is always a little bit of attention. But I think, you know, the the power and the, the, the way in which they perform and help drive people to that final action we want of, of trying the, the really good stuff, the wine, uh, means they're always going to have a, a role to play. And, and I think a channel that yeah, has got great long-term fundamentals. And is there any difference in the just roughly the cost of acquiring a customer or that discount you have to give the the, the customer in the US versus the UK to actually take the the gamble, the gamble but take the investment and, and actually buy the first case in, in Naked? The reality is we run in lots of different markets at different times, different offers. The thing that's constant in all of them is we'll be testing the right level of incentive. And the thing we're always balancing is, you know, if you, a deeper incentive will leverage your media cost investment more effectively. So for, you'll convert more traffic, make the incentive too deep, and you'll bring in too too many time wasters. And so your aggregate quality goes down and you're burning stock and money and time on, on people who've got no interest in being a long-term subscriber. So you know we've just got a bunch of smart people running calculations and optimizing different channels and different audiences in different markets. It's much more about the, the right combination of, of channel and audience than it is about a country. Nick, quick question on the logistics build out in the US. How, how are you approaching that? I think one of the things that uh, you know the team that we put in place have done a great job of is building, I mean, a category leading network. And um, our operations director in the US, a guy called Brian Peabody, joined us probably about three years ago now. And I think he, you know, he took what was a solid foundation and has really, really helped drive the maturity of that network. So we're now we work in partnership with a company called Wine Shipping. You know, we're a CapEx light business. So wine shipping, they're the warehousing experts. They put down the CapEx on new sites. They, they operate sites exclusively for us. 
the thing that's been great about having Brian on board in our team here is, you know, in his background, he comes out of Toms of Maine and Colgate. You know, he's done all the jobs as well as running large networks. So he knows how to operate warehouses efficiently as well as build a scale network. And I actually, I saw his first three-year plan presentation the other day. And we kind of, pleasingly, you know, three years in, we've done all of the first three-year plan and a bit more. So he's done a great job. So, yeah, where we are today is a network that can serve 95% of our customers with a product within two days of order and that it does so with increasing cost efficiency, as you can see from our most recent disclosure, you know, and that's very satisfying. I think it's still an area where we see opportunity to invest in improving the customer experience. You know, in particular, in the USA, where wine is an adult signature category, driving to give people more choice and more certainty around the point in which their package arrives, you know, ultimately hoping to get down to some time windows, but you know, that, that's, that's a way away, but I think that's the right long-term aim because that is still one of the, can be one of the points of pain or failure for our experience. And actually, it's one of the things that drives long tenure members to cancel. And it kills me because it's, you know, the final mile is to an extent outside your control, but you've always got to be innovating and finding ways to make that easier and more convenient, more flexible for members. And you use, I guess, last mile carriers that, that, that actually delivered a product from the warehouse. It, it, exactly. Yes. I think the big difference for, for us compared to a lot of people though, is say that I think 95% of our orders ship with shipping included. And that's, you know, that's very different from the market norm in the US. I, I still remember having, you know, kind of, you know, utter disbelief the first time I tried to order a case of wine from San Francisco and it was 60 bucks. Someone wanted to charge me to ship my wine 50 miles up to Napa. And so having built a network at scale that's efficient and have the economics to be able to offer that included, is a really big point of differentiation. And especially if you think about, you know, back to this kind of question of what do we offer to a smaller winery? You know, if you're a small winery today, you know, making your 2000 cases of wine, you're trying to ship it to all your members nationally, probably from your one location in California. It's probably costing you 75 to $80 to get a case of wine to the East Coast. And so, you know, again, it's just another way in which, you know, our model helps strip out unnecessary cost and support better value to the consumer. And there's no capex that you the naked has to put down to open a new warehouse. No, it, look, it actually ends up being a lot like um, the winemaker equation. You know, the, the you, do, you know a lot of things. The biggest thing you can offer in a partnership like this is you know uh, you, you're you're a secure client and you can offer commitment and you know tenure of relationship and and in return. In this instance, you know the nice thing is we keep the business capex light. And just you mentioned that disclosure, so I think you reported that fulfillment costs per order declined. 20 odd percent of 31 bucks i think so is that of a case that's 120 dollars or what's the what was that what's the fulfillment cost roughly the case that you that's referring to it's a really artful way of you trying to get me to disclose our average order value um in the us which i'm not going to do <laughs> i know yeah. I'm, i just what i'm trying to get at more is is actually where like how low do you think this really can get to when you're at scale Okay. I think what we've seen this year is a is a step change. And I, I don't think it'll be a while before we see another step change. So I think now we should go back into a path of gradual improvement. You know, the things that can carry on improving, you know, we have a negotiated margin structure with our warehousing operator. So as we put more volume through, the margin per bottle decreases so that you'll continue seeing benefit there. I think probably the next time you might get to a step change will be at some point we will get to sufficient scale to for it to make sense for us to work with our partners to look at investment in automation. And, and ultimately, the USA, the UK and Australia are three high labor cost geographies. 
And there is quite a lot of labor involved in the pick pack operation. So at some point, you know, that will probably be the next opportunity. Probably it'll come up first in the UK because that's a, that's our biggest single warehouse operation. Just the nature of the UK, right? You've got a consolidated market where you can serve all our customers from a single point. Whereas in the US, we're serving, you know, because you make a big saving by getting closer to the customer and reducing your final mile charge, you actually have smaller individual warehouses. And just on the working capital, Nick, how how does the working capital investment from Naked evolve as the sales grow? The guidance we give on this, and it's it's never, you know, it's never absolutely linear year to year, but the guidance we give is roughly if you increase investment in new customer acquisition by a million, you should expect to see a million investment through the balance sheet in working capital. And that's been our, our long-term relationship. And so that's what we guide to. What that tells you is effectively that you know existing customers fund all their own stock. So the reason that you might need to fund more stock or see, see that working capital balance grow is because you need to provide for the stock for new customers. And the, the change is not the total, not the investment, but it's the change in investment that drives needing more working capital. Long term, there is, I'm sure there is opportunity in optimization for our working capital. But right now, I think as we see the transformation in the consumer environment and we see the opportunities for growth are vast and you know, a chance to accelerate growth, I think the right thing for us to do strategically is to be a little bit longer on stock. So we may well build inventory well ahead of that in the kind of, you know, in the six to 12 months to come, because you don't want to find yourself in a position where inventory is a constraint to growth. And I think wine is, is a little bit like those signs you get in hairdressers, uh, sometimes which say, or barbershops, right? You know, you can have something good, you can have it cheap, or you can have it quick. <laughs> and, you know, for us, you know, the wine's got to be good. So that's that's one of our two. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we like being involved in production so we can make it efficient, which is code for cheap. But that means you can't have it quick. So, you know, we did, you know, we, we do need to commit to to that quality and authenticity of inventory in, to be able to support our growth. And last couple of questions, Nick. As you're evolving now from a UK brick and mortar retailer, previously now to naked, a real online D2C, mainly in the US, how aggressive can you get in acquiring customers? And really investing through the income statement for the long run as Naked becomes more of a, I guess, not valid entity, but it's you know, as the days go on, it's more and more proven. What we're determined to do is grow this business to scale. I think there's so much about the business improves as it scales, you know, not just for us, but for all the other participants we support with the value we give to customers, the opportunities we can give to winemakers. And I think the positive change we can impact on the wider wine industry, where I think there's so many people who are crying out for an alternative for, you know, a very consolidated production environment and, you know, some different routes to market and distribution, you know, especially with with this year and COVID having accentuated that, right? You know, the routes to market for smaller producers tended to be direct to the consumer at their tasting room or, or via quality local restaurants, you know, both sectors that have been hammered. So I think the wine industry has never needed a business like Naked more, and, and we need to be much bigger to, to have the level of impact that's needed. So we're committed to growing. I think we can substantially scale the amount we invest in new customer acquisition. Because we have the positive secular trend of migration of spend online and this this awakening of understanding and openness to the category, because we continue to have a lot of headroom 
to grow awareness of Naked as a brand and, and our points of difference and, and, and what we do. And because we've got the capability and the, you know, the technology and the understanding and ability to measure lifetime value to, to de-risk that investment, you know, I think that sets us up incredibly well. And because, frankly, there's still a lot of stuff that we should be doing that we're not doing. It's why we one of the first things I committed to is having an R&D fund to explore new marketing channels, because there are still a lot of channels that I see as being proven or companies I think of as peers are deploying a lot of capital into that, that we haven't in the past. So I think there's a lot more places you can deploy capital. But also, when the consumer environment changes supporting marketing response and when you scale the business driving higher lifetime value, that opens up a lot more investment potential in channels you already know and understand. And, you know, you can, you can revisit partnerships that didn't work in the past or on a channel like Facebook, you know, a small improvement in your response rate and your lifetime value supports an improvement of say 15 to 20% in your allowable bid, which actually can unlock double the volume. So, you know, some of these channels can really compound. So, I think there's a lot of headroom. I'm not going to make a promise as to where we can get to or in what speed we can get there. But I, I definitely look at businesses that we believe generate, you know, comparable or lower lifetime values that have got to well north of 100 million in investment in customer acquisition in, in the USA. And I certainly think we'd be an unambitious team if we didn't believe Naked should be able to get there at some point. Okay, let's last question. And it's 2030, and Naked is not there. They're not spending 100 million in the US. They're not the largest player. What do you think the reason could be? But I think, you know, first of all, you know, I, I kind of hope, you know, very hopefully we're still there, and I, you know, I, I'd still like to be involved. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. I, I think the. You know, the only way I really see this business failing would be if in, you know, if in driving for growth, you lose sight of the reason the business exists and the point of difference. So I think if Naked went wrong, it would be you'd, you'd take a different philosophy and you'd, you'd forget about building a win-win partnership. If you forget about growth that benefits your suppliers and winemakers and your customers and you, you focus too much on short-term perspective. So if you if you make it all about trying to drive the investment numbers or all about trying to drive a, you know, oh, we've got to have a 30% top line growth rate or or any of that. I think if you did that, you could lose the point of the business. And I think a great piece of advice that one of my colleagues gave me once was, you know, for every one person who kind of turns up at work kind of interested in, you know, how how big the revenue line might get be or what the share price might be, you know, there's nine people who turn up at work because they want to make an impact on the lives of talented winemakers and give them a platform. And, you know, we had an email from Sam Plunkett, the guy I mentioned in Victoria, Australia the other day, and I had everyone in the office in tears. It said, um, I, I don't know if you, I'm paraphrasing here, I haven't got it in front of me, but it said, I, I don't know if you guys know exactly the amount of impact that you have on the ground and that Naked is making. We were drawing together a budget for this year with the pandemic starting and trying to work out if we could get by without laying people off with revenue down 50%. As it is, you know, with the with the orders coming in from Naked, we're we're on track for a record year and that means we've been able to employ a bunch more people in in the community and and Sam set this winery up in a pretty rundown town in rural Victoria. And he takes an awful lot of pride in, in being able to employ people in the local area. And he just said, you know, like, we're just so grateful and, you know, it means so much for us to be a part of this. And uh, that, that's the that's the reason people come to work. So 
I think if we lost track of that, that would be the reason the business failed. But could you move into spirits or craft beer or in the same model? I think there's a lot of long term, you know, by which I mean, you know, beyond the next kind of three years, where else could you think of value generation for for naked? I think I prefer the economics of spirits to to beer. A couple of reasons. It's a it's a non-perishable product. All of the things that are wrong with the wine industry are also wrong with the spirits industry. You know, extraordinary consolidation of production, marketing budgets vastly greater than the cost of the, the product itself. No platform for kind of small independents to meaningfully kind of, you know, grow volume. So I think that could be an, a really interesting opportunity. Um, we've had a lot of success actually in the UK selling some gin, um, some vermouth. We've just done our first whiskey. Uh, so, and, and James, obviously, he's seven years or so at Diageo, knows the spirits industry inside out. So I think that could be a credible long-term opportunity. Uh, the regulatory landscape for direct consumer spirits is a bit more challenging in the US, so, so, so probably, probably not. But you know, ultimately, we've got something like one and a bit percent of a 24, 25 billion pound addressable wine market. And I think we've got a winning and differentiated proposition. So there's, there's quite a lot for us to get our teeth into in the wine. Music.